welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Endocrinology. This podcast aims to bring you expert and patient perspectives on the medical management of patients with Cushing's disease and the importance of optimising patient outcomes in the multidisciplinary team setting. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Recordati Rare Diseases and Zeris Pharmaceuticals, Inc. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In this discussion, an endocrinologist, a pituitary surgeon and a pituitary nurse specialist review treatment pathways for patients with Cushing's disease with a focus on the role of medical therapies and provide insights on the efficacy and safety of approved medical agents and other considerations for clinical practice. Hello, my name is Dr. Larry Katznelson. I am a professor of neurosurgery and medicine in endocrinology at the Stanford University School of Medicine, and I'm also the medical director of the Pituitary Center at Stanford Healthcare. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, first Dr. Tim Smith, who is a neurosurgeon scientist and surgical co-director of the Multidisciplinary Pituitary Center at the Brigham Women's Hospital, the Neurosciences Center based in Boston, Massachusetts, and as well by Mrs. Sandy Ramsberg, Sandy is a pituitary nursing specialist and the nurse coordinator of the Pituitary Center at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism in Baltimore, Maryland. And together today, we will be considering the clinical data for medical therapies along the patient's journey and treatment of Cushing's disease. Now, there are a number of studies that have looked at the pathways of therapy, and I'm referring specifically to one published uh, in 2021 by the Pituitary Society that walks uh, us through the, the algorithm of how we approach patients. And I'm going to ask first uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Smith, to discuss the, the initial approach to these patients. Tim? So when a patient is presenting with symptoms of potentially harboring Cushing's disease, they get worked up. And then once they're diagnosed, in general, for patients that are of appropriate age and without significant comorbidities that would prevent them from undergoing surgery, most patients undergo surgery as the first line of treatment. And the goal there is to identify a pituitary adenoma that is functional and to resect it completely. That is the goal of surgery. In general, however, when we're counseling patients, we discuss with them that this is going to be management of a chronic disease process. Surgery is not going to be necessarily for all patients, um, the only treatment they get. So we take them to surgery. Most patients will do well with the operation. Um, there is recurrence rate, however, about five, anywhere from five to 35% of patients will reoccur. Half of those will reoccur within five years, most people within 10 years. And when that happens, Many times we reconsider surgery as a second option, if so another operation. Um, and once we've exhausted the surgical option, that's when we start to consider um, whether or not the patient's going to need to go on for other forms of treatment, including medical therapy and radiotherapy. Medical therapy, I'll leave for you, Larry, to discuss, it's sort of in your wheelhouse. Some patients that have exhausted both surgical and medical treatment go on for radiosurgery, which is focused radiation 
to the region where they were harboring the adenoma. Um, and in general, that is our approach. Thanks, Tim. Tim, can you comment on the use and value of endoscopy in the surgical approach? Oh, absolutely. I, I think in endoscopy is one of the probably key technological innovations that has improved outcomes for patients over the years. When, when you think about, you know, what we're trying to do as surgeons is we're trying to see what it is that we're resecting. In general, the pituitary gland is 1 to 1.5 centimeters in normal people. If we're trying to you know, resect a tumor that's 3 to 5 millimeters, it's very, very small. Visualization is absolutely essential. The 1950s introduction of the microscope, which is where the magnification occurs outside the patient's body. There's a lens outside the patient that you're shining a light through the nostril, which was a step forward. And then in the 1990s, the endoscope was introduced, which is where cameras are mounted at the end of an instrument that's inserted through the nostril to the region that we're operating. And it just made incredible amount of difference for seeing what we're doing and maximizing the likelihood of resecting the tumor. Thank you for that, Tim. In terms of use of medical therapies, I first want to make a comment on uh, patients who have undergone radiotherapy. Radiotherapy, radiosurgery, can take several years or more to be effective. And while we are waiting for the uh, efficacy of the radiosurgery radio or standard radiation approaches, patients need to be on medical therapy to control the hypercortisolism while waiting for the radiation to take effect. Now, when we think about medical therapy, uh, we, use the, we usually consider this as either mono or combination therapy, depending upon the extreme of the hypercortisolism. Uh, these patients uh, require lifelong monitoring uh, if they are on medical therapy, because these medical therapies do not destroy the underlying problem uh, in terms of the tumor, but they control the cortisol. Bilateral adrenalectomy is usually utilized in those patients who have more advanced disease, who are not responding to medical therapy, or there may be specific situations, such as a woman who is interested in fertility, because none of the medical therapies to treat Cushing's disease are FDA approved for the management of, uh, of, of Cushing's in a pregnant woman. So we often use bilateral adrenalectomy for those patients. We may also go right to bilateral adrenalectomy in patients who have ectopic cushions from a neuroendocrine malignancy. So if a patient has malignancy and will be requiring chemotherapy, we often use bilateral adrenalectomy up front in order to ensure that we've controlled the hypercortisolism before these patients undergo chemotherapy. Now, when thinking about the medical therapy strategies, we think about medical therapies that target different levels of the uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So there are medications that target directly the pituitary tumor, and I'll be discussing those in a second. We have medical therapies that target the adrenal gland to lower cortisol production. And we have a medical therapy that systemically blocks the glucocorticoid receptor, so it blocks wherever cortisol goes. So I'm going to start with the medical therapies that target the adrenal gland, because these are the ones that tend to be used most commonly. Internationally, ketoconazole, and materapone are the most commonly used. These are not FDA-approved in the United States, but because they are inexpensive, they are used pretty much universally uh, internationally. The, the only concern about ketoconazole is that it has a black box warning with liver function side effects, and there have been cases of, of 
significant liver damage in patients who receive ketoconazole. I have not seen that in my practice. And generally, when we're using ketoconazole, we reduce if the dose, if not stop the ketoconazole, patients have AST or ALT levels more than two and a half times normal. Uh, there is a novel enantiomer of ketoconazole named levoketoconazole that recently came on the market that may also be effective similarly to ketoconazole. Oscillorotostat is another new uh, kit on the block in terms of blocking down the adrenal glands, highly effective, very well tolerated at normalizing cortisol levels. About 6 to 10% of women may have a rise in androgen levels. Uh, associated with the block of the adrenal gland, and that may give rise to hirsutism and acne. So, so testosterone levels need to be monitored. For those patients who uh, we wish to target the pituitary tumor itself, uh, pasiriotide is FDA-approved and highly effective at not only normalizing cortisol in about a quarter of patients, but also in shrinking the tumor. Uh, a side effect needs to be monitored is hyperglycemia. Cabergoline in off FDA label purposes can also be used to treat pituitary tumor. Again, we usually use these medications in those patients who have significant tumor burden that is not surgically accessible. The last class of medications is mifepristone, which is a glucocorticoid receptor blocker. So this blocks cortisol wherever it goes. We cannot monitor cortisol levels in these patients because cortisol levels do not fall. If anything, they may rise but their impact is blocked by the receptor antagonist. Side effects to look out for mifepristone uh, include in women, um, vaginal bleeding, and in both genders, hypertension and hypokalemia. Now, so there are benefits and limitations of each medical therapy. Uh, in, in patients who have large tumors, I described that at large pituitary tumors, we may move more quickly towards the pasiriotide or cabergoline that target the pituitary disorder. Uh, uh, but really, they are, these are all excellent medications. And I tried to separate earlier on using bilateral adrenalectomy for those patients who are not responding well to either mono or combination medical therapies or are interested in fertility. Now, I would like to pass the uh, the conversation to Sandy to comment from her experience as a nurse specialist on how patients approach medical therapies. Sandy? Um, yes, hello. Thank you, Dr. Katz-Nelson. One factor that causes resistance is the frequent lab testing that's involved. I've seen a few patients develop a severe needle phobia. Other factors include the cost, anxiety, and fear of what treatment entails. There are many side effects to the medications that treat Cushing disease. With Pasiriotide, one of our patients actually presented to the ER several times with blood pressure spikes. With levoketoconazole, we had a patient develop elevated liver function tests. With Acilobristat, patients have reported fatigue and headaches. And with Mifepristone, peripheral edema and hypokalemia. Our patients are encouraged to proactively use their patient portal to report side effects directly to their physician. This method allows a quick response back to the patient. Further information can be obtained to triage the issue and make any adjustments to treatment or order any additional testing. A key challenge is ensuring that patients complete the necessary medical treatment. 
and testing. Unfortunately, there is no perfect drug without side effects. Patients need support during therapy and encouragement to actively participate in their treatment. Thank you, Sandy. And I want to thank uh, both uh, Dr. Smith and Ms. Ramsberg for their insights today. I am going to close this conversation today. And uh, thank you all very much. And I hope you found this helpful. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this topic on Touch Endocrinology at www.touchendocrinology.com. Don't forget there are two other chapters in this series, so please listen in for further insights from the multidisciplinary team.